in a message series uh, called God-Centered Families, and the title of today's message is A New Household, household Code, uh, because several times in the New Testament, uh, biblical writers under the uh, tutelage of the Holy Spirit will take you know, common approaches to family, and then they'll weave the gospel into it and say, you know, you, uh, normally a lot of families operate this way, but here's the way Christians will approach family life. My friends, marriage and family, uh, it can be fabulously hard because our families face so much opposition. There is a real devil who hates marriage. He hates the picture of Jesus and his bride that marriage represents. He hates love and life and beauty and all of its forms. And this world really hates marriage. It hates unity and faithfulness, uh, monogamy, and our own flesh. My sinful nature hates it when I try to put someone ahead of me. But God loves marriage, and the Holy Spirit within us loves marriage, and God is with us, and He is for us, and He will help us. I told you a couple weeks ago, you want to make believers feel guilty, just preach or teach on prayer. Preach or teach on family life. My aim is not to make you feel guilty. You know, Jesus Christ calls us to excellence, but loves us and shows grace to us as we mature along the way. That's called sanctification. You become a Christian, you're as saved as you'll ever be, but you're not as mature as you'll ever be. We make progress over time. And the Bible holds up the ideal of marriage, the ideal of family life. And I make no apology for preaching it. But like I told you a couple weeks ago, I preach it better than I practice it. If Martha were in this service, she would say amen. I preach it better than I practice it. You would teach it better than you practice it as well. But here's the ideal. And we don't stop aiming for it. But neither do we beat ourselves up along the way when we need to apologize and repent and confess and grow. All right? Here's a definition of a Christian family. It's a small community where the lordship of Jesus Christ makes a world of difference. And I have three simple points today as I walk you through a section of Scripture that is one of those household codes in the New Testament. First point is this. Christian marriages are called to a grand purpose, a large purpose. Yes, one of the purposes of marriage is personal joy, but actually the purpose of marriage even has a larger, grander purpose than that, that even goes beyond our happiness. We're going to read a section of Scripture that some of you might sort of go, whoa, And it might challenge you a little bit. You need to give God permission to challenge you. One of the first uh, ingredients in growing is a teachable spirit that says, Lord, I know I have a fallen mind. I know I have a fallen will. And I want to be a clean sheet of paper. And I give you permission to challenge me and to teach me and to point me in your direction. N.T. Wright says this about the passage of scripture we're about to read he says 
if this guideline still seems outrageous in today's culture, we should ask ourselves, do our modern societies in which marriage is often a tragedy or a joke really offer a better model of how to do it? Ephesians 5, beginning verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You know, in any relationship, seeking win-win, putting each other first, I mean, that is just an atmosphere adjuster. It's a game changer. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So he says, husbands, I place you in the head of your home. And what that means is you have primary accountability. You don't need to be like Adam in the Garden of Eden who said, eh, whatever. You need to accept responsibility. And that should jar your senses a little bit. Absenteeism and passivity is not God's assignment for men. And it's not God's assignment for husbands and dads. And what that means is, if no one in your family wants to pray over dinner, you go ahead. If no one in your family wants to go to church on Sunday, you go ahead. God doesn't give you permission to blame somebody else. He holds Christian men accountable. Headship doesn't mean you make all the decisions or what you say goes to that feedback. That's, that's absurd. And the wife, and, and in this passage of Scripture, the wife's not forced to respect her husband. That's her choice. You've got to make a choice on that. The husband is not forced to serve his wife. You, you have to make a choice. These are faith choices. But wise is the family where you say, hey, we're a partnership here. The goal of marriage is what? This oneness. Martha and I, we, we don't even talk about who runs the house or who's the boss. I don't know where she ends and I begin. I don't know where I end and she begins. We're both in this together, seeking to honor the Lord and serve the Lord together. And it's a good thing when you support his leadership and welcome her partnership. Your aim is to be one. In verse 25, and here I'm about to read something now that's really controversial in other sections of the world. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, you mean she doesn't need to walk three paces behind? No. What you sacrifice for her. Just like Christ sacrificed in a serving way for the church to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And now he goes back being really practical. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, because he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it, they care for it, just as Christ does the church, for we're members of his body. There's an old Jewish fable, hundreds of years old, 
two men in a boat. Two men in a rowboat. And this guy over here starts drilling a hole, punching a hole in the boat. He, he does one hole, then he does an, another hole. And this guy over here says, stop it. What are you doing? And this guy says, who's been dr punching the hole, says, don't worry about it. I'm only punching holes on my side of the boat. And the obvious point of that old Jewish fable is what you do affects me. We're, and we even have a phrase. We're all in the same boat. There's a kind of study in families called family systems. What I do affects you. What you do affects me. If you're old enough to understand what I'm saying and you're living at home, children, you affect the family dynamics. There. For this reason, verse 31, a man leaves his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And you say, wait a minute. You just quoted Genesis 2:24, which is that great statement describing marriage. And Paul would say, I know that, but there is something far beyond the agenda for a marriage that just goes, that, that goes beyond Ronnie and Martha's happiness. It's an illustration of the wonderful, mysterious connection between Christ and his church. And my friends, this says something about marriage. God does this. God merges two into one. It also says something about the importance of the church, the bride of Christ, and how important the church is. And here's a summary statement, verse 33. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Which leads to my second point. Marriage is really built on love and respect. Your marriage, it's really built on love and respect. Uh, Emerson Egerich has written a book and does seminars all over the world on this concept of love and respect. He even has a couple of diagrams. One is called the crazy cycle. There it is. Without love, she reacts. Without respect, he reacts. But you can engage in the energizing cycle. His love motivates her respect. And her respect motivates his love. You know, in marriage, there will be times you will feel and you will be disappointed. And that's fair. But it's your choice whether or not to be unloving or disrespectful. Egerich says this. We believe that love best motivates a woman and respect most powerfully motivates a man. Research reveals that during marital conflict, a husband most often reacts when feeling disrespected and a wife reacts when feeling unloved. We asked 7,000 people this question. When you're in a conflict with your spouse, do you feel unloved or disrespected? 83% of the men said disrespected. 72% of the women said unloved. And though we all need love and respect, the felt need is a little different. You and your mate have some differences. Martha and I have differences. 
They don't have to be dangerous. They can actually be dynamic. But if we're not careful, we'll start judging one another and criticizing one another over those differences. And I'm going to generalize here, but generally speaking, for a woman, for a wife, her number one need is going to be a sense of security. I'm loved and cared for. Secondly, it's for open and honest communication. She wants to talk, not headlines, but some details here. I want to be involved in your life. Thirdly, some soft, non-sexual affection, friendship. You're thinking about me. Four, partnership. She wants a husband who's actually engaged, not a passive puddle of protoplasm, but he's going to be actually engaged in the areas of children, spirituality, finances, etc. Security, communication, affection, partnership. Those are needs. Men are not the same. Typically, a man's number one need is a sense of respect and honor. That's sort of the mega need there. Secondly, is going to be romantic intimacy, sex. And I don't think that should surprise anyone. Third need is friendship with his wife. Wants a buddy, a friend, do things together. Not a mom, but a friend. And the fourth is domestic support. Doesn't mean she does everything around the house, but she has that unique way of taking the house and turning it into a home. And so honor, respect, romantic intimacy, friendship, domestic support. And when you reject my needs, you reject me. When I reject your needs, I reject you. And so we seek to understand one another. There's an old saying that says, if both of us are the same, one of us is unnecessary. But we're different by God's design. And we embrace those differences. You become a team. That's the way God made you. Now, the opposite of love and respect. You know, you've got the differences there, but where there's love and respect, you can learn to work through those and celebrate those differences. You don't have to just tolerate them. You can celebrate them. But here are some losing strategies, and I want to highlight them very quickly. One is needing to be right. Is that you? Some of you would rather be right than be reconciled. And sometimes that ball of string is just trying to figure out where it starts. It's just yeah. Another one is controlling your spouse. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, not others' control. You cannot control another person. You can influence, but you want to be gentle with your words and mighty in your prayers and I would remind you of what I remind every engaged couple in premarital counseling. Celebrate the word request. When I make a request, I'm clear and direct. Martha, here's something that's important to me. I'd like to share it with you. Uh, this is important to me. Not going to make a demand, not an ultimatum, not a threat. It's a request. And when you make a request, you're respecting the other, other person. Thirdly, unfiltered self-expression. You don't want to be within 100 miles of unfiltered self-expression. What that looks like is, sit down for a moment and let me tell you in precise, lurid detail just exactly how miserable you've made me by your shortcomings because I need to vent. Venting seldom does anyone 
any good. Go back and read the book of Proverbs, all the things it has to say about speech and the power of the tongue. Consider tone and timing. Fourth, retaliation. Just deciding I'm, I'm going to get even. In a Christian marriage, you want both of those. You want to grow and become expert forgivers because you're going to hurt each other, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in, sometimes in large ways. And I'm not talking about putting up with you know, significant abuse, but I'm talking about in the flow of a marriage. You're going to hurt each other, sometimes small ways, sometimes large ways. And we don't want to just be chained to the past. And if I'm the one who's caused the damage... I need to be willing to own it, acknowledge it, apologize for it, and show some accountability. Otherwise, Martha will think that either I don't really understand or I don't care. And here's a fifth no-win strategy that erodes love and respect, and that's just withdrawal. Uh, just pulling away. You disengage maybe from specific aspects of the, of the relationship, intellectually, conversationally, physically, spiritually. And what I'm going to ask of you today, my friends, will you re-engage in your marriage? Even difficult situations contain a hidden reservoir of hope and Small changes under the touch of the Holy Spirit can lead to significant strides forward in your marriage. So treat your spouse better than you treat anyone else. Forgive your spouse more than you forgive anyone else and adapt to your spouse far more than you would adapt to anyone else. The grass is greener where you water it and you're not alone. The Lord will be with you. Be willing to take that step of faith that where you're willing to walk by faith and ask God to meet you and do beyond what you can do in your own. Now, in this household code, he doesn't stop here. He's going to give a brief uh, word to the uh, parenting dynamic. And basically, he's going to tell us that parenting is not for the faint of heart. Ephesians 6 verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right and honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So why is this taught? Why is this a command? Because my natural bent is not to go there. But do that so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Isn't this interesting? He's already addressed both parents. Children, obey your parents. But here he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Why? Is it because, you know, dad maybe is taking a, a, a leadership role in the training of the children? I don't know, maybe. Maybe it's because fathers have a greater tendency to exasperate a child. I don't know. Exasperation, creating that feeling in another person that no matter what I do, it will never be good enough for you. I can't win with you. Fathers, do not exasperate. 
No unreasonably harsh demands. No constant nagging. Being sensitive to that child. And here's something that the Christian code brings in. Actually caring about the emotional welfare of that child. And bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Um, let me put a diagram here on the screen. This is, a this is a diagram of four common parenting styles. You notice the lower left is a neglectful style. Low love and low direction. The upper left quadrant, permissive style. A lot of affection, a lot of love, just not much direction. The lower right, authoritarian. Strong code of conduct, but not much grace if there's a misstep. But that upper right quadrant is ideally where we want to be. Much love, much affection, much grace and help and support along the way, but also clear boundaries. This is who we are. Every family needs to be free to say, gang, we are the Joneses, we're the Normans, we're the Smiths, and these are our values. When I was a kid, I'd sometimes, you know, do something goofy, and uh, my parents would call me on and say, well, you know, Tommy did it. Well, if Tommy jumped off a bridge, would you? Well, Mike, Mike Lane down the road, he did it. He said, well, you know, that's the Lane family. That's the Blackburn family. And that's not us. And every family, as for me and my house, here are our values. You, you can't force people to embrace them, but you can say, this is what's important to us. In Jewish homes, it was the Shema, regularly saying to, to the children, we are people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. These are big rocks in our Jewish family. And Christian families have those values. We're introducing our children to the love of God and to the truth of God. And this is who we are. We're going to love everyone. And the Lane family down the street, the Blackburn family down the street, you know, they may not be believers. We're not going to hate them. We're not going to, but at the same time, we're going to love them. We're going to respect them. But every family needs to identify and be very intentional with your values and self-differentiate. <laughs> be willing to say, not every family may hold on to these values, but we do, and we are very, very comfortable in our own skin. And when you're in that upper right quadrant, your values taught with much affection and love. Uh, one writer says, you could break it down like this. Some families, they're like a brick wall. You know where they stand, but there's not a lot of grace and support. Other families, they're like a jellyfish. No structure, no guidelines. And others, they have backbone. Much love, much support, but values and direction. And certainly as the children are younger, there's a lot of control. As they age, you get older, 
Uh, it's more of coaching than controlling, but parents also always retain veto power. Parents, I want to remind you, your home not only has a doorway, it has gates. And you are to guard those gates. You are the gatekeeper in your family. Whatever's in your home, you either allow it or you disallow it. For example, God, I've been talking about the God's values. You want to open the gate to the Lord. This is who we are. We belong to the Lord, and we teach his love and his, his truth. But what about the gate of friends? Do you know who your kids' friends are? Their contacts. Do you know who your friends' parents are? What they believe, what they stand for. What about entertainment? You know, you got to guard the gate on entertainment. you got to be cyber savvy these, these days. What about education? Who's teaching your kids? You know what they're being taught? It's parents. We guard the gates. And sometimes we want to open the gate. Sometimes we want to maybe close it a little bit. But that's one of our roles. And parents, I want to remind you that one of the most important things you do in your home, you, you reward good behavior, but when something go, doesn't just go exactly right, and you have made a misstep, <laughs> for us as parents to model before our children, here's how you handle a sin. Here's how you handle a wrongdoing. You own it. Dad owns it. Mom owns it. You own it. You acknowledge it. You fix it if you can. You apologize. You confess to the Lord. You learn from it. And you move on in freedom. One of the greatest life lessons you'll pass along to your children is how you handle it when you've made a misstep. We all do. Again, there's the ideal. Don't apologize for teaching the ideal, hold, aspiring to the ideal. And then there's the real. And God meets us in the real. He shows us grace and mercy in the real. He gives us the help of the Holy Spirit in the real so that we might continue to move onward and upward.